see. Home. I'm T.S. Motherfucking A. We handle shit. That's what we do. Consider this situation. Fucking handle. Okay. Yeah. He's dead. Hello, this is Josh Oakley. And this is Ian Corey. This is 21st Century Boys. And we are your friends. It's a yearly tradition. It's what we do as cultural critics to talk about the, sort of the sum up the year and uh, what a year it has been. I don't know if I can offer any like grand thesis on... Uh, 2017 that hasn't already been hackily written by some website or another. Yeah, I mean, usually I kind of I kind of like this time of year for cultural criticism to at least some extent. It has like a it's a bit nostalgic, like you know, going home looking over lists and you know being able to bond with people or just argue with people, and it, it's just a, a good way to get like a temperature of a year. But I, I honestly, and th- this will kind of like come up in the uh, the one of the the themes that I talk about today is that. I kind of don't really care what a lot of people have to say about 2017 because I I lived all of it, you know, like I was around for all of this bullshit. And while there was like plenty of movies and music and TV shows that meant a lot to me during the year, I do feel like my priorities have been very uh, severely altered, you know, in in the way that I consume them and also the way that I make them. And, And there's, you know, just... It's been an eventful year. It's been an exhausting year. And sometimes it's hard to work up the energy to read about 100 songs that happened to come out while all this other shit was happening. You know, so no offense to everyone who's like getting those freelancer paychecks, writing those, you know, blurbs for 100 songs. Like, do you, you know, more power to you. But I'm not not as psyched to, to dive into a lot of all of it as I usually am. But I'm happy that we are doing this together and that you, the listener, if you are listening, have do have the energy to always listen to us prattle on about some of the stuff that we enjoyed. Um, and I'm excited the way we're going to do it uh, this year. Instead of kind of doing formal top 10 movies, top 10 album lists, we are just going to kind of hit each of us five broader topics or specific things that really came to the forefront for us this year. And I think that that's a good way to, you know, like you said, try and take the temperature of a year by looking at kind of those things that kept popping out, those ideas that kept returning to us throughout the year, rather than just a specific album that we happen to like a lot or a specific movie we dug. I don't know if that ends up really saying more about the year or, or really just speaking more to our personal experiences, but I think it's you know at least an interesting way to try and uh, diagnose, I don't know, the, the things that we, we stuck to during this year when, when we needed stuff like it. Sure thing. Um, so uh, do you want to get started or do you want me to take the first crack at it? Okay, so obviously the ordering of this is even less considered than it would be for a normalist, considering these are ideas and themes rather than specific pieces of art. But my number five is the idea of a surprising sitcom. For me, this year had a lot of sitcoms that in some way or another really stood out in a way beyond the traditional form because I've actually dropped a lot of TV shows this year because a lot of it does feel not inconsequential because that's unfair I, I think there's a room for escapism and room that uh you know you have to adjust your priorities when personal stuff comes up when bigger stuff comes up so the sitcoms that i really stuck to i ended up dropping more sitcoms than anything because so many of them do feel kind of superfluous but but there were some that surprised in either little ways insecure which was a show that i thought was completely solid through its first season and a half really really stuck the landing with the second season finale uh, that I think is one of the best episodes of the year and took a really strong, dramatic turn. The year was kicked off by this Netflix remake of a 70s sitcom, One Day at a Time, which had, it's a laugh track multicam sitcom and has zero reason to be any good, but was a really stirringly topical look at immigration and family and was was an absolute delight. Another Netflix show, Bojack Horseman, came and was surprising, not that it was good because that's what's expected from that show at this point, but the way in which it was good, that it offered more hope than ever, which was, you know, something that was nice to not just have another um, nihilistic deep dive 
uh, in 2017 to have something that actually tried to find something worth living for in the middle of the shit. Another show that was a complete surprise all around was American Vandal. You know, I shit on Netflix a lot, and three of these five shows are, are Netflix shows, but American Vandal is the mockumentary about making a murder and serial and that kind of thing, but really developed into this incredible look at high school life that was just something completely unexpected and was a really nice touching point for uh, some really good writing on the show um, and a good show to, to talk about with friends. It was a real connection point for the year, one that kind of appeared unexpectedly. And then the uh, my, my favorite of these surprising sitcoms this year was The Good Place, which is the NBC sitcom that uh, kind of famously at this point took a incredibly big turn at the end of the first season earlier this year and has really dug into the consequences of that turn throughout its second season and it's very much a show about morality and about what makes a good person and how that can change and and how you can distinguish yourself. I think it's dealing with really weighty things in a really fun way, um, which is something else that was incredibly welcome uh, in this year. Word. Um, so discounting BoJack Horseman, if you were, since I'm already a fan of the show, I just haven't gotten around to the newest season, which of those shows would you recommend uh, either to me or to the listener as like a way to dive into these su- surprising sitcoms theme? I would say... Probably The Good Place, just because I think what it did managed to do was take the bones of what one expects from a sitcom, the, the hangout vibe and all of that, and then radically transform it into something that had uh, more meaning, more heft to it, and while still maintaining kind of a light air and, and being one of the funniest things on TV. Uh, so I think it kind of balanced the expected and the unexpected in a way that I think really exemplifies what, what I'm getting at here. Do you feel like there's sort of a, a reoccurring theme as to why these sitcoms in particular uh, stood out to you? What made these ones stand out against the crowd? And what made the, if, was, if there was anything that made them feel like particularly 2017? I think the thing was that they refused to get comfortable. I think they refused to let themselves sit in whatever their basic principle was. Like Insecure is a good example for that because it was just, I think, a solid but somewhat unremarkable sitcom for, for its first year. And that and had so much growth in, in its second year this, this summer that I think the thing that it speaks to in, in 2017 is um, not taking anything at face value and realizing that uh, even smaller stories or seemingly inconsequential stories can um, really matter if told in a, a, a proper way and can offer so much empathy and reward if you are able to look past what the basic surface of the, the genre or the format offers. Word. So I, I'm definitely going to have to catch up on a lot of those. I, I'm, you know, obviously I'm aware of a lot of those shows. I've been meaning to check out American Vandal, um, but that's like a good uh, introduction primer to a, a field that I am generally not too knowledgeable about. So if you don't mind, I'm going to move on to my t- number five on, on my list is unconventional music criticism. Because I spend most of my time now in the music criticism world writing it rather than reading it, it kind of feels like when I do crack open, so to speak, uh, a web page of like an album review or, you know, some blog post about a record, I'm just, it feels like work, you know, because I'm spending all of my time like editing other people doing the very same thing. But I'm still a junkie for this shit. I still want to hear people's opinions about music and think critically about the music that I'm listening to and get other people's perspectives. So I've found that I've become more than ever interested in sort of unconventional ways of analyzing music, whether that be through videos or through podcasts. Uh, specifically, I know I brought this up in our last podcast, which has yet to come out, The this YouTube channel called Lost in Vegas, where it's essentially a reaction YouTube video. The thing that caught my eye about it was that it's these two hip hop fans talking about heavy metal, but they also are very good rap critics. Like the heavy metal stuff is, it's very cool that they're doing it and they're certainly great at it. But their bread and butter, really, once you dig in, is how how good they are at breaking down different couplets, different like meanings to songs, kind of reacting in real time and being able to analyze lyrics as they're flying past them. It's really high quality stuff, but it's also it's like hanging out with two friends and showing them a song and see, seeing how they react to it. It's this sort of infectious like social experience experience in a very different way, since those are sort of like first time reactions. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum is something like Dissect, which is a podcast that is this incredibly long-form, granular analysis of an entire album by going song by song, practically line by line over the course of an episode, 
breaking down what the songs mean, how the different chord progressions inform the, the lyrics that are happening over them. It's an incredibly specific, nerdy type of way of approaching music, but that is so different than the kind of like, you have to be the first to put up an album review about an album the minute it drops at midnight. Like, this is the exact opposite. It's going back to two albums that have been out for years now. The first season was about To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. And the second season was about My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. Both of these albums have been out forever, but, or what seems like forever, considering that 2017 is like a decade unto itself. The fact that he is willing to take the time to go back to these older records and treat them with the seriousness that a lot of older records at this point do not get because we're so obsessed with the new what's coming out now what's you know what's fresh what's going to be like the get us the most clicks on the day of release this is like much more for the fans perspective of like let's revisit a, an album that we all know we love and really think about why we love it and then some somewhere in between kind of off the map entirely is something like song exploder which i wouldn't say is music criticism but it is thinking very critically about music it's a interview podcast where a musician will sort of go through all of the various tracks within a song that they recorded, explain how they wrote it, explain the recording process, and it retrains your ear as you're listening to a song being sort of surgically dissected to when they put it back together, suddenly you can listen to it and sort of hear the thought process as it's happening. And if you do it enough, you can kind of do that for a song that you've never heard before. You can start picking things apart or understanding the logic behind someone's songwriting choices as they're happening. So I found that those were a lot more inspiring to me, both as a writer and a musician and a fan, than just going on Pitchfork and reading the newest like five album reviews. No insult to the writers of Pitchfork. As I said, get your money. Yeah, I think, and I think, I think the thing that you highlight there that I think is really apt uh, for, for something summing up this year is that idea of, you know, for a while now in the internet era, we've had this problem with only focusing on the now and, and being so stuck in the present moment as far as culture. And I think this year has kind of only exacerbated that, right? Because every day is about the things that pop up in your phone, the, the news notifications that you wake up to. Just everything feels like you don't have time to digest, let alone the, the, the huge things, the important things, the, the things going on in politics, because they just keep shifting and keep happening. Um, and I think that just continues to trickle down to the to the cultural sense as well, where it, it's harder to luxuriate in something because they just feel, you know, when you have less time to to focus on the music or the, the films, you, you can spend less time doing that deep dive. And so um, I think it's important to highlight things that are bringing that, making that conversation fuller. One question I have for you, for you on that front is, do you find, because uh, the examples you brought up are great, uh, they're all either podcasts or, or video. Uh, my, my favorite piece of writing, really, this year, uh, but cultural criticism, is uh, Hanif Adarakib's piece on Carly Rae Jepsen for the semi-defunct MTV News, where it, you know, it starts off about this piece. He starts writing about like police brutality a little bit and, and race and ends up talking about um, what makes Carly Rae Jepsen stand out and loneliness. And I think it's just really brilliant. And do you find anybody in the writing field? I know you said that that doesn't necessarily get, like in traditional album reviews don't get you as excited um, as they may have used to, but do you still find that writing can offer that fresh perspective in, in the way that those podcasts or video series do? Absolutely. I think that to your point about, you know, I think bringing up the now defunct MTV News is a really important point here because if there were more sites that were uh, able to support interesting music writing, I feel like I maybe wouldn't have gone into like list looking for that in podcasts and YouTube videos. You know, like if there were more platforms for all of these good writers that suddenly, you know, got the outs because all of these sites started pivoting to video without actually knowing what they were doing when they did that. I think absolutely there would still be there and there are still are really, really great writers. Like anytime Lindsay Zolads writes anything about music, I'm clicking on it. Like I don't care what the topic is. And so, yes, absolutely. There's still a lot of room for the written word about music. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I write about music. I, I think particularly my relationship with music and music writing in, in particular has sort of made it more difficult for me to get my excitement up about reading a lot about music. And that's just a particular of my lifestyle. But I think there's a ton of great writers out there. They haven't gone anywhere. They just happen to be, you know, 
not on the same sites that we we saw them on in the beginning of the year, you know, which is a shame. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go to my number four. My, my number four is actually a, a theme that really emerged at the halfway point of the year when I, I just posted kind of a, uh, just for, for kicks, uh, my favorite films of the year so far. And I realized that a vast majority of them were about death. And as somebody pointed out to me on Twitter, that's a lot of art, right? Like in some way, a lot of art is about death. And, and there's certainly some that are just kind of tangentially related, like The Big Sick, which is about realizing how much somebody means to you because of, of illness. There's Your Name, the, the, the anime film that is about de- death in a way that kind of reverses itself and, and then plays with it a little bit. Or even something like uh, The Last Jedi, which, you know, we haven't talked about. I, I think it's incredible. And it's only about death in a, in a small way, but, but that way includes a conversation with Carrie Fisher, which obviously heightens that feeling in the way that that, that can happen with film. But then there are some, there, there are really four to me that are directly... Um, confronting the notions of, of death, which, which still feels like a pretty big percentage of, of the great movies in any given year. One is a film that I bugged you about earlier this year, Logan. I actually rewatched the other day and I think holds up tremendously. And, and I only realized more on this viewing that it really is about death and legacy and, and hope. And um, I think it its quiet moments are really as, as profound as anything uh, um, a blockbuster film or a superhero film has offered. Um, in recent memory, but then kind of more along the traditional like art house film bent, uh, there is a quiet passion film from Terrence Davies about uh, it's an Emily Dickinson biopic um, biopic quite kind of in quotes because it's much more poetic, which makes sense with Emily Dickinson than than that genre traditionally is because biopics are my least favorite kind of film, but but this one is so stirring and and so much about this woman dealing with basically centering her entire life around the notion of mortality um, and the toll that that can take, um, but but obviously the great art that can be created from that and, and the conflict of those two ideas. And the other two are A Personal Shopper, which was the first film this year that I truly loved and still sits in my top five. Uh, I think it is a, it's a film about Kristen Stewart's character is trying to investigate her brother's death. She, she speaks to ghosts. Um, she's a medium. That That's one of her jobs. So it is very much about trying to communicate with the the ghosts of, of yourself and the ghosts that you will eventually leave behind. And, uh, you know, that really goes hand in hand with a, another film, one that we did talk about in detail, uh, A Ghost Story, um, which also still sits in my top five. It's one of my favorite of the year. Both of those films are so much about death, but in a way that, you know, I don't want to say anything as trite as they're about death in a way that they're really about, you know, how to live, because I don't think it's that simple, but but I think that thread is there in, in both of those and really all of the films that, that I mentioned here, is they, none of these are nihilistic films. Um, none of them are, are hopeless. They're all about, and this is, I think, an important thing to remember this year, they're about, are appreciating that, just kind of the naked truth that you will die someday, and all of the people you love will die someday, and that's just a fact. And it's a hard thing to confront directly, and, and I think these films at their best manage to really take on that kind of nauseating truth in a way that kind of put me in the tailspin for, for a good portion of this year. But but I think it was an important tailspin to go through to to learn to appreciate things more than I, I might have beforehand. See, it's funny that you bring this up because, I mean, I haven't seen all of the movies that you mentioned. Obviously, we talked about Ghost Story, and you've brought up some of these other ones as recommendations throughout the year. But I've been thinking about, uh, in my end-of-the-year piece that I wrote for Invisible Oranges last year, I sort of talked about how 2016, I'm always going to remember that as the year of loss, you know? It's the year where just like so many cultural icons and cultural figures just got wiped off the map, kind of all like so fast all at once. Um, And so it makes a lot of sense to me that this year, a lot of the art that we've been ingesting is kind of about dealing with loss. It's like, how do we then reconcile living when someone else has died? There's music about that this year too. Like the, I think the big example, the one that everyone's been talking about is the Mount Erie record, uh, A Crow Looked at Me, which is just, I don't know if you've listened to it, but it's, it is a, it's rough. It's really, really difficult to listen to because it's basically a journal entry at, at a time over music as Phil Elvrum is uh, grappling with the death, the very sudden death of his wife and how he should raise his, uh, 
extremely young child in the wake of this, you know, tragedy. I will never listen to this record again. I don't see any need to. I don't think it, I honestly don't think it should have been released. Although, you know, hats off to him, the fact that he felt the need to share that with people. But I, I feel very uncomfortable about its existence as like a commodified piece of art. But, you know, even on, in a less extreme sense, there's this one metal record that's gotten a lot of buzz this year called Mirror Reaper by this band Bellwitch, whose drummer uh, passed away last year while they were making this record. So the drummer was also doing vocals for them. And so his voice is on this album that they finished without him. And it's really, really bleak. I mean, the music itself, they've always been a very slow, very funereal, you know, atmospheric sort of like fog rising out of the woods kind of sounding band but now actually having the voice of one of their dead band members on it it's it's you know that can be a like almost a gimmick or like a sort of a novelty but it's it's more than that i think it's it's an incredible way of honoring his passing and confronting what it feels like to have someone important in your life like ripped away from you unexpectedly yeah uh, yeah, I haven't listened. Uh, I was just talking about to my roommate about this the other day because he finally listened to the Mount Deary album, and I, I haven't yet, and I honestly don't know if I ever will because I, I'm not sure I could stomach it um, from, from what you and, and other people have said about it. But, but I, th- I think you're, I think you, that, that the point you bring up is interesting about if last year was lost, this year is the aftermath, and you know, I, I think that kind of again gets to the things that. Uh, I was trying to, to to bring up with with these films, which is you know it, it's less about the inspiration of if you know live every day like it's your last or, or something trite like that, and it's more about just kind of putting in your face that that cold reality and and saying well you have to go through today anyway. There's no other choice, and you have to keep creating or you have to keep um, loving people and and being a part of the world even despite these cold hard facts, even if you can't turn them into inspiration or turn them into something more, you, you have to, 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 to deal with them directly. And I, I think that that's something that, you know, have I, having not listened to those albums, um, I think that that confrontation uh, in a way that isn't cruel, um, at least for the most part, is kind of the through line there for me. Uh, so speaking of the end, the other point that I would like to bring up for my number four is the beginnings or fresh starts sort of in the wake of all of the loss and all of the pain that we experienced last year crushing failure on the on a political side or you know this sort of immense rupture in the entertainment industry or industries in general this year one of the things that I kept coming back to is all of this represents a chance for a fresh start you know so let's take it from the most uh, trivial perspective first. As you know, I'm a huge basketball fan. I've talked about basketball on this podcast before. Sort of in the wake of the Golden State Warriors running ramshit over the entire NBA, everyone went fucking nuts over the course of the offseason this year and just traded everyone all across the board. Tons of insane moves and signings. It was as if the destruction of the natural order in the NBA caused everyone to sort of rewrite the script and figure out What are we going to do now? No one gave up. Everyone just tried to figure out how to beat the Warriors because it's the only thing you can do. And so everyone's pulling off these insane, like ridiculous trades. The Rockets are taking more threes than any other team in the entire history of the league. There's all of these clusterings of superstars. And it's really fun because it's no one sat down and said, let's just run it back. It said, now is not the time to just sit there and do the same things that we've been doing day in, day out. Now is the time to reapproach and reinvigorate everything that we do in order to overcome this seemingly impossible obstacle. I think something similar is happening, at least in my life politically, is after the failure of the Democratic Party, I got really invested in finding a different way. If, you know, it's this Anton Chigurh quote, if the rule that brought you here, you know, if the rule that you follow brought you here, of what use is the rule? And so... I've just had this sense that like now is not the time for me to just like try and run it back, try and get invested in this, in maintaining the status quo. I want to start building something new. So I've been getting more and more involved with, uh, you know, in my personal life, the, the democratic socialists of America, but you can see all these other people doing similar things with other organizations and other causes in their life, because we've sort of all recognized you know, the state isn't going to come and save us. The, you know, the sort of superheroes of uh, the political fiction that we've been telling ourselves, like, you know, the Wu-Tang 
loving Joe Biden doesn't exist and isn't going to save us from, you know, the Republicans. We have to do it ourselves. And we, this is a, a chance for a fresh start to, you know, not just accept things as they are. History isn't ending. We get to build it ourselves now. Um, and to go back to my point about the entertainment industry. So obviously it's not great living in the world that we're living in right now, where it seems like every day we learn about some sort of, uh, you know, cultural figure that's been secretly been a terrible person this entire time. That's bad. I'm not saying that that's good. The, the status quo of that is clearly bad. But I do think that in the wake of all these revelations, it offers us a really, really clear and sober chance to say, well, let's get some new people involved. If, this is, if these are the people that have been running shit and getting away with this for so long, maybe it's time for a change. Maybe it's time to give the, the keys over to new people and get all these fuckers out of here and transition into a new form of the industry, rethink all of the, the rules that we've been living by because these rules were made by people who were hurting people. So why should we follow them anymore? I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think that's a very smart way to connect all of those kind of dis sports, politics, entertainment. Um, I, I think you're right that there is that, that line coursing through all of them. And my, the, the thing I'm saving for my number one kind of speaks to that notion of turning things over in a, in a little smaller scale. But, but I think you're right that this is the year of no longer being able to, not no longer being able to hide because I think it was a personal um, irresponsibility to hide at any point. But, but kind of culture more directly being thrown things. You know, seeing something like, like right, I mean, to speak to your political point, seeing something like Doug Jones, right, getting elected, and then within two days talking about how he's going to kind of back to, you know, how, how willing to, to kind of compromise ideals he sounds, seems like he, he is. So I think that was kind of a, because that felt like such a, a very disturbing victory at the time, uh, or very disturbing that it needed to feel like a victory at the time. Um, the fact that it was kind of qu so quickly cut down, um, I think, you know, in, in some way felt a little hopeless, but in another way really kind of just exacerbated that idea that you bring up where we can't just get comfortable from the, those. It, it's important that these things happen. It's important that, that Doug Jones wins once the election is down to those two people. It's important that all these people are, are highlighted for, for their um, horrific behavior. But the, the, the things that come after, um, the, the real behavioral change comes after that. Uh, it's not just the calling out. It's not just the election of this one person. It, it's the process that, that 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 starts with that and 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 moves forward from there. So I, as I just said, am in every way for for what you're saying and moving forward and and stepping into something new. Um, but my uh, next thing is uh, very much about wallowing, um, which I think can be an important part of the the moving forward process. Very, it was a very clear through line when I kind of just threw together for for fun uh, my favorite albums of the year list, and it was just. Um, incredibly sad female singer-songwriters. The the one that is my favorite album of the year is, is uh, Lord's album, which doesn't, you know, fits that in a very broad stroke, but it's really the next three that, that really just consistently go for the gut in a way that I found important. Because I do think that directly addressing the, the sadness and depression and all of that is a really important part of that pushing through process. And so these albums are from the, the latest from Julie Byrne, um, Julian Baker, and then the debut album from Phoebe Bridgers. And by lumping them together, I'm by no means, you know, saying they're all the same. Julie Byrne's album is much more ethereal. Phoebe Bridgers has more of kind of a, a country vibe almost to it. And, and Julian Baker, I think, um, is able to really hit these climaxes on the songs in a way that the other two don't really aim for, not, not, not a criticism of theirs. But the thing that does tie all three together to me is how much of open wounds they are and how much I appreciated having things so directly said to me. Um, you know, even if I wasn't able to, to wade into the, the Mount Erie album, these kind of stood in that place for me in a way that was kind of cathartic, but, but more just allowed me to sit in things that I might have otherwise tried to avoid. And, and they do so by, by, by sometimes couching those things in really beautiful metaphor. Um, but, but I think the reason they spoke to me so, so, so powerfully is because sometimes they just really rip into it. And I think like the best example of that is from Funeral off of the uh, Phoebe Bridgers debut album, Strangers in the, Stranger in the Alps, where 
she sings, Jesus Christ, I'm so blue all the time, and that's just how I feel, always have, and I always will. And it's very naked, and it's very out there, and it's not inherently poetic, but she and, and uh, especially her and, and Julian Baker are really able to build to those emotions in a way that never feels, to me, never feels forced and never feels unearned and, and works in the way that at least my mind does, um, where you snake your way to the, the core of what you're really thinking and kind of wading through all of the, the metaphor and the, the double meanings and arriving at something that you can directly take on is, I think, uh, a very cathartic feeling that I, I really needed this year and, and these albums gave to me. So I'm definitely going to have to check out this uh, Phoebe Bridges record because I love the other records that you mentioned, specifically the Julian Baker one. I have I loved her last record too. This one I'm still kind of like digging into a bit. Uh, I wish it had a bit more guitar and a bit less piano, but I'm sure I'll get used to that over time. But yeah, I, th I think you're totally the, the sort of wallowing thing while I don't have any of these particular records in my, my top 10. Uh, two of the other albums that I think come to mind that I've been listening to a lot lately is Process by Sampha, which came out really early in the year, so it feels like it came out a million fucking years ago, but is also, you know, it's also a record about death. It's a lot about the death of his mother. A lot of it is him dealing with that and how it's affected the other relationships in his life. It is kind of got this wallowing sensation. You know, he's a piano-focused, you know, soulful guy and then the other kind of record the other record that i've been thinking about a lot lately is uh a romanticism by moses sumney which is just it's it's the radiohead album that i've wanted from the last few but haven't gotten uh it's just so gorgeous and so impeccably arranged and it's all just about feeling incredibly disconnected from the world and kind of wallowing in that sensation i've seen the name phoebe bridges mentioned a lot lately uh, i think she's coming through brooklyn sometime soon so I'm definitely going to have to check that out because she's in very good company in that list. I, I really like those those two records that you mentioned, the especially the the, the songs um, No One Knows Me Like uh, the Piano and Doomed from the from the Moses Sumney album. Both of those songs have been have, have, have helped me in the same way that these albums that I mentioned have um, so that they they're good to bring up. All right. What's next on your list? So speaking of feelings of disconnection, um, one of the best things that I've done this year is disconnect to some degree. Um, I deleted my Twitter a few months ago. Um, I want to say around October. And I have never been happier about that decision. <laughs> um, it's, it, is, it is such a burden off of your brain once you decide to, to pull the plug that it made me wonder why I ever thought it was a good idea to get on in the first place, which is a shame because I've got a lot of fond memories related, uh, associated with Twitter. But it just it started to feel like I was renting out part of my brain to a bar fight. I know I've used that metaphor a lot, but I think it's, it's the one that speaks to the situation the most uh, accurately. It just felt like every single morning I was deliberately making myself feel like shit and that there was better ways to stay current without having to deal with all of the infighting and all of the sort of bludgeoning, ugly rhetoric that Twitter sort of by its very nature – encourages and i just felt like it was a terribly run website i thought that the people who were running it were doing uh the least amount of helpful work to keep it well maintained and i i just had this moment of realization that like social media only has as much power as we give it you know like everyone always says to themselves like oh i you know i'm a writer i can't not be on twitter if i'm you know if i'm trying to get my pieces seen i need to be tweeting them that's not necessarily true there's other ways to promote yourself. There's other ways to, you know, and if you're doing good work, people are going to stumble across it. You don't have to constantly be like tweeting about your shit or workshopping ideas on Twitter. Hell, it's probably a better idea just to workshop your ideas in private, you know? Like you don't have to be renting out your thoughts to the world. You can take the time to craft something on your own and really, you know, not have other people's junk constantly interrupting your own train of thought. And I think that by the end of 2018, I'm likely going to be off Facebook as well, um, just because I, I, I'm morally opposed to the way that that company is run. But even going beyond just the social media side of things, I think one of the side effects of that is that I now have the space to care about the things that matter to me. And I don't necessarily feel the urge to 
keep up with the things that naturally put me on edge or make me angry. I, I still want to have a great deal of curiosity about the, the way that other people live their lives and the thoughts of other people, but I don't want to also have the noise interfering with that. Like I don't, if I don't want to read about, you know, all of the various like Harry Potter memes that are out in the world, I can just not do that. I can accept that that's not for me and I can move on and I can look at the things that I'm interested in. Um, and so in a practical way, you know, part of the other stuff that I've done this year is I've done the no superheroes thing. I know that I've been missing out on some good movies as a result, but I just got sick of the conversation and I wanted to put my money elsewhere. Uh, similarly, I don't need to talk about Game of Thrones maybe ever again, you know, that last season, not very good. I don't intend to really, I don't think I'm going to watch the new one. Probably not going to watch Stranger Things. I know people like it. Doesn't matter. Not really a fan. And instead, I'm just going to care about the things that I care about and be passionate and positive and overtly, um, you know, earnest about the things that I can really summon the energy to be earnest about. I, I definitely feel you. I mean, I, I kind of briefly brought that up when I was talking about sitcoms, but um, I've dropped more shows this year than ever, including Game of Thrones. And it was a really freeing sensation um, once, because, I mean, that's just a show that yeah, ever since, like, really its first few seasons really struggled to click with me for um, an extended period of time. Uh, I rarely made it through a whole season, and, and at the end of it, it was like, oh, I'm really glad I got through all that. So I definitely feel you on that, uh, making the decision to to invest yourself in things, because, you know, it's something that sounds, at least where I'm coming from, and it sounds like we're coming from too, isn't just a fuck you dismissal of a thing that's popular because it's popular. It's the opposite of that. It's it's an investment in the things that you want and allowing yourself to do that and, and to focus on personal taste and personal preference, and not even just preference, but the things that... The, the larger ideas you want to think about and being able to spend time with those things. Um, and I'm also, I, you know, I think that the reason I'm, you know, most glad you, you're not on Twitter anymore is because um, I, I like the steps that you've taken from there. I really have been enjoying your tiny letter, and I think that's a very cool thing. And I think that that's a thing that offers a personal connection to a writer in a way that Twitter feigns at, tends to be. And uh, I think because there is so much of that noise around it, you actually lose that whatever connection it may have seemed like like you had. Um, and I think the tiny letter that you've been offering really re-extends that hand to the reader in, I think, a really cool way. Thanks, man. I, I've been really enjoying doing it. I want to do more of it. I've just sort of realized in general, like, the way that I would like to communicate with people is by email, if not in person. Uh, I don't really like talking on the phone, and I'm bad at texting. So I would prefer to just you know, the, the joke that I've always made about like why I'm terrible at taking pictures is I just rather write the thousand words, you know, like it's, it comes, it comes easier to me to do that, you know? And so I've, I've got kind of gotten into the habit of, of sending some of my friends, some very long winded emails, you know, at their own request. I'm, I'm not just doing it out of the blue, but uh, it's something I like to do more of. I just think that we could all stand to be, to take some time with the way that we, we decide to think about things, take some time to decide how we really feel about something before we, we fire our thoughts off about it. You know, I, I think we would all stand to just be a, a bit smarter, you know, yeah. if we decide to do that. I think you're absolutely right. All right. So I've offered films about death, um, very sad albums. And now I'm going to talk about endings. I, my, my number one is hopeful. My number one is forward thinking, but uh, for right now, some more, mostly depressing stuff. Um, and that is not depressing in the way that it was incredible art and it was the the fact that we got two series finales this year on TV that were extraordinary, which you're lucky in a year if you get one, like solid one. And I, I think we really had two masterpieces. I'll get to the more obvious one uh, for, for the both of us in a second, but the first one um, was for The Leftovers, um, which ended its three season run this year with an episode that is mostly just a conversation between two people that is so complex and I'm trying to think of a way to even discuss it because it, so, so basically there's this you know, the, the premise of the show is that 2% of the world's population disappeared and kind of throughout the, most of the show, you really don't need to think about what happened or, or why it happened. That That isn't really a, a mystery that the show is investing you in. And then in the finale, it offers an explanation and the explanation is really heartbreaking. And, but it offers it in a way that extends hope somehow. And to, to, look at a situation to look at this possibility that is so 
on its face full of shit and despair and finding it a, a, a possibility of connection between people. I think that was, sorry, um, it really it really affected me. It, it, that was the thing that was Feel really it out, important. Man, it's to all me. good. <laughs> that was the thing that was really important to me this year was 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 offering the hope not that things will be good or that things will ever be perfect, but that you can find people to inch towards perfection with. And and that was an episode of TV that really offered that to me. And then we got a another finale that looked at uh, despair in a much different way, but, but no less important and no less worthy way um, with with Twin Peaks, which. You know, now that words come out, maybe it won't actually be the series finale. But for now, that that is the context in which it was delivered, and um, I think it functions as a series finale so perfectly in the way that it not only culminates all of the the narrative threads that it was building, but really offers this grand thesis on on what it's saying in its final moments that have stuck with me like very little else um, in art in, in recent years has. It is horrifying and devastating, and I just think of the words, "What year is it?" occasionally. And, and just get this chill down my spine. And it's something that, having talked to you about it and having talked to other people about it, you know, again, not that it, I think kind of a theme running through all of these themes that I'm talking about is offering something between despair and hope, something that isn't even as simple as either of the, um, and I think Twin Peaks is, the Twin Peaks finale is really the apex of that, in that it is so hard to watch that those last few minutes and really everything that's building to it but but specifically that final scene um because we know that it is saying that some things cannot be overcome but but i think talking to people has helped me realize that it is not saying not to try to overcome those things um it is not pushing away the battle it is not saying it is saying that you will have to empty yourself and to to even move somewhere new and that that new place is still going to have the scars of the past and you're still going to have to deal with all of that weight um, but you have to keep pushing for something and it's funny it's, it's difficult to, to boil down something like that into some, some way that doesn't sound simple but it's really not it's not as simple as, as hope and it's not as simple as um, a loss of hope it's it's life it's it's finding out that nothing is is as simple as as um, any of that and you have to keep, you have to face nihilism. You have to understand nihilism in order to find some way past it. I, I'm really glad that you just set up the perfect uh, segue into my own number two, because it has to do a great deal with Twin Peaks, which, yes, absolutely, I, per the conversation that we had last time that hopefully people will get to hear, we're dealing with some technical difficulties. Hopefully they'll get to hear our conversation about Twin Peaks. Absolutely, that was a point that I wanted to make was that I don't think it's just nihilism for nihilism's sake, even though, yes, it is one of the darkest, most day-ruining, week-ruining endings uh, that I've for anything that I've ever seen. Uh, I still think that its mere existence is a hopeful thing uh, because one of my favorite things about this year was the experience of watching directors do the thing that they do well and nothing else. So David Lynch was just allowed to be David Lynch for 18 episodes of television. Didn't have to care about anything else. Didn't have to care about the concerns of a network. Was just given full reign and went for it. He didn't hold himself back either. It's him and Mark Frost just being themselves, telling the story exactly as how they want to tell it. And as a result, they, they created this thing that's unlike anything else out there in the world. The other two examples that I want to bring up, I wouldn't say are anywhere near the same level of quality, but the purity of vision for them, I think, is kind of indicative of a larger trend, which is just generally, I like it when people, you know, find their strength and just do their strength and are willing to go for it and uh, give in entirely to their uh, own aesthetic aspirations. So... Uh, I know that you're probably not a Christopher Nolan guy, I or that we both kind of have complex feelings about Christopher Nolan. Would that be a better way to put it? Yeah, I think that's fair. I really, really liked Dunkirk because it takes the my favorite sensation that Christopher Nolan does, which is that sort of beautifully orchestrated clockwork of action, that sort of constant state of tension of watching all these Lego pieces kind of click together. Um, and he did it for an entire movie. And nothing else. I think in in retrospect, Interstellar is is maybe better than I gave it credit for at the time. 
mostly because I, th- I think when I saw Interstellar, I was still like angry about The Dark Knight Rises. And I think Interstellar is probably the purest expression of his sentiment, but Dunkirk is the most pure expression of what he is good at when it comes to making movies. And it is literally just only that experience. Uh, similarly, we never got a chance to talk about Mother. <laughs> Aronofsky is another director that I kind of hate love in that I think he's ridiculous uh, and that he's kind of responsible or he's actually kind of not responsible for a lot of his best ideas. He stole a lot of his best ideas from Satoshi Kon and other really great directors. But Mother does the one thing that I think he does better than no one else, which is that sensation of everything falling apart just one frame faster than you think it is. Uh, That sense of rising chaos and escalating absurdity that is slipping out of both the character's control and also his and also yours. And Mother is that for the entire movie. It's just him doing pure, uncut Aronofsky the entire way through. And so, like it or leave it, he left it all on the table for that movie. And I think that's much better than if he, than say the movie that he put out prior to that, which is Noah, which is the most like chained up half Aronofsky experience that you can get where you only really get to see glimpses of Aronofsky beneath the curtain of this like larger corporate enterprise. Mother is just straight Aronofsky the entire time. And that's what I want from my artists. I want artists to feel free to go for the most them thing that they can make. I think I'm sitting, I sit somewhere on mother between the, it's been on like a surprising number of like top 10 lists this year. There are a lot of huge supporters of that film. Um, and I sit somewhere between them and the very stupid and I think shallow uh, kind of basic audience reaction, which was just complete dismissal. Because um, I think you're right that it is com- it is a completely unique and personal work in a way that, I mean, very few works of art this year have surprised me. Like when I realized that I was watching uh, Kristen Wiig gun down people like that like and then realizing (laughs) oh how did we wait okay so we were there and then we arrived and 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 having to figure out how the pieces fell in a place there and i don't think they always fall correctly but they certainly fall in a way that he intended and i do think that that is something that um is almost inspiring to see on on the big screen in a, a big release like that and i think you're absolutely right about dunkirk i loved dunkirk and i think you're right i think and i'm also a huge interstellar fan maybe i do just love christopher nolan uh like uh, Dark Knight Rises aside, because I mean, you know, I, I think you're right. I think like Interstellar is his heart unfiltered, and Dunkirk is his brain unfiltered. Um, and you know, you can see each part in each other. Like Dunkirk has some emotion that I think works really well. Interstellar has some intricacies that I think work really well. But I, I think I, you bring up an interesting point about highlighting the two sides of him, and that actually also serves as a nice transition to my next thing, um, which, as I said, I was. Uh, a lot, a lot of these have been kind of bleak, um, dark topics. But this one is all about looking forward, um, and and looking forward through the director's eyes. And it is the unbelievable debut films that we've had this year. I think we've talked in the recent past about having this being a pretty good time for for debut films in general the past few years. But as it sits now, you know, I still have some big works to see this year. But as it sits now, three of the films in my top ten, including my number one at the moment are debut uh, films, and uh, that's pretty extraordinary to me. Um, And I think something that helps is that all three of them are from directors that have, are known to some degree. Um, The the least of those three is uh, Koganada, who directed Columbus. He is a video essayist, so again, not as big of an audience as the other people I'll get to, but, you know, he was somewhat well-known in the film community. Um, And then he made this film, Columbus, which I really think is kind of the most underrated film of the year. Uh, it features my two favorite performances of the year, Haley Lou Richardson and John Cho, are extraordinary in it. And they it's a film about just kind of them discovering each other and dealing with their own sadnesses in, in Columbus, Indiana, which is this architecturally insane town. And so the film is likewise beautiful and perfectly constructed on a, on a visual level, but it never feels cold. It never feels detached because of that. It is perfectly designed and perfectly felt, which is such a rare combination. And I, I think it's, again, extra incredible to see that from someone who's just picking up the camera uh, for a feature for the first time. The other two are a little more notable on the big scale. One is what I think, you know, isn't my favorite film of the year, but I think is the film of the year, almost kind of unquestionably, which is Get Out. Again, uh, even more so from a 
person that was not a feature film director before, but very well known. Everyone, you know, Jordan Peele certainly had a name for himself, but I think that almost fed into the surprise of Get Out, that it was so distinct from what we might have expected from it. I really think it can't be understated what a cultural impact it had. I mean, you would overhear people talking about it in like the summer and it came out in February and that does not happen with films these days. Um, that barely happens with like Star Wars these days. You know, I, it's really incredible for a film to have that kind of impact. Um, and I think the fact that it was able to marry a, a an entertainment, I don't want to say commercialistic because I don't think he concedes anything to to uh, the business side, but, but it's still entertaining on that basic visceral level but it extends so much deeper um, than than any of the other film of its ilk uh, it was was really something to see and I think has stood again like you said this year has felt like a decade and and still the this film from this this relatively small horror film from February is still one of the most talked about things um, one of the most vital things of the year and then the the third directorial debut which is my favorite of the year is Lady Bird um, again from uh, from Greta Gerwig someone who once again she's written Francis Ha or co-written Francis Ha and um, Mistress America so her voice is well known and this film fits alongside those very well but you also get something so distinct. I, I love Noah Bumbach's directing on both of those those works. Francis Haas, maybe my favorite film of all time. But I, I think what Greta Gerwig brings to Lady Bird is um, an even greater understanding of... I think it's one of the best portraits. You know, we've had so much art in the last few years that's about myopia, that's about uh, narcissism. And I think this is one of the best examples um, because, one, it's about more than that. It's just about coming of age in general. But it is so clear the things that the main character is missing out on. I think that the, the issues that other works of art that deal with that theme can have the problem of is they are as self-centered as the characters themselves, which can make it hard to impart that message. I'm not saying that's always a flaw, but it can be. And what Lady Bird does is offer these little glimpses. The, the thing, a small detail that stuck out with me the second time I saw it is uh, she goes to, to a guy's house and she loses her virginity. And then she, she goes down the stairs and the guy's a dick. The, the guy's an asshole. And on her way out of the house, she sees, just briefly, his dad, who's dying of cancer, on the couch. And the film sticks on it for a second, but it doesn't um, push the idea too hard that every person in her life is complex, and whether or not she can see it. And that comes up in ways through her best friend in this incredibly powerful scene with, with one of my favorite lines of the year, um, some people just aren't built happy. And, and, and so you really see... Um, how difficult it can be to see other people complexly. And, you know, that's not a theme in all three of the films that I just mentioned, but the thing that all three of them offer is not just um, that they are, are debut films that are incredible, but they are from um, an African-American director, an Asian-American director, and a female director. And so you were talking, something that you brought up earlier is, is making sure these other voices have room. And the thing that gives, or gives me more hope than anything else is the fact that we got such staggering works from these new voices. And, you know, again, that is not an, 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 a promise that we, we don't have. To, we have to follow up on that promise. We have to make sure that continues. But I think the fact that, you know, Get Out and Lady Bird are not just both incredible films, but are two of the most talked about films of the year in the award circuit and, and just among critics and among people. I haven't met somebody who's seen either of those two films and disliked them. And um, that, to me, just speaks to the hope that those voices will continue to grow. Because not only are these three films terrific, they're terrific in ways that only those directors with their sensibilities could have brought. And um, that is such a vital thing going forward. Yes, absolutely. I, I co-signed all that. I loved Lady Bird so much. I think that it's it's. I hadn't thought about it so much as a, a movie about narcissism, but so much of what I enjoyed about it was the point that you made about how every single character, I was so glad to see them every time I saw them because all of them felt like complete people in some way. You know, some of them maybe like the football coach, okay, it's a one note joke, but it's the fact that he's very enthusiastic about making the musical work automatically makes him an incredibly like more nuanced character than that joke could have been, you know? I, I've been thinking a lot, a lot about the like, love and attention line is kind of the main thing that I took away from it. But yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about how there is a point to that is being made about how detailed every single character is and how Lady Bird is unable to see that. Um, that it's a really good read on it. Um, we'll have to talk about that movie more at another date, I think. Briefly, one point I want to make about Get Out. 
I think Get Out has maybe the best mainstream fandom of any like big movie of that size because usually this is something that we complain about a lot is the way that fandom sort of like criticizes or analyzes quote unquote movies and so much of it is taking these like very superfluous super superficial details and uh, equating them with having some sort of story meaning or saying like oh because this person wore red in this scene therefore this like character is going to die you know it's it's not actually trying to analyze theme it's all just trying to analyze plot um get out is so fucking deliberate with all of the points that it's making and it's making them about something so much larger than just the film itself it's attaching it to this entire cultural conversation that everyone is able to read its symbolic language in a much like i've been blown away like everyone that's talked about analyzing various uh themes various interactions what they represent what those kind of symbolize in uh you know in american discourse today and race relations is actually really insightful and improves the movie it's it's this kind of incredible feat of art where jordan peele is not dumbing down his view of the world for his audience because he knows that if he says what he means they're going to be smart enough to get it it's it's a really really incredible uh and very rare feat so i just want to salute to to jordan peele and get out for that because it's it's raised the discourse about popular movies in a way that uh, i don't think many other popular films really have uh, stepped up to in this year so for my final point i want to briefly talk about a concert that i went to Um, it's one that i initially planned on writing about and couldn't really figure out how to do it i went and saw a band called have a nice life and it's uh, they are a band who release have released two albums may never release another record and will never likely ever play another concert. They were formed by two history teachers in Connecticut. Uh, They were a project that the two of them did with no expectations to make money, no expectations to be popular. They just wanted to write some songs, record them, and make it the best that they can. They did it all on Logic, which I have on my computer, and you have a version of GarageBand likely on your computer that is better than the version of Logic than they had at the time. So they were using very, very basic sounds and very, very basic materials. They didn't have a lot of money. They basically speculate that the whole thing got made for maybe about $500. It is a monumental work. It is an incredibly dark, incredibly harrowing record of all of these, you know, sort of gothy emo songs put through this filter of intense noise and sound manipulation. And it just creates this incredible atmosphere that's at once super lo-fi but also so detailed and so personalized um that it's it's unmistakably them and it blew up it blew up in this incredibly small kind of internet community of uh depressed music nerds to put it as plainly as i can put it um so i was very into it as well i never thought i'd get a chance to see them live they were always going to be a studio band um they were always going to be sort of a project that the the two of them did in between their daily life they never had any like rock star ambitions, but the opportunity came. And so I went and saw them at the Brooklyn Bazaar um, a few months back. And the sensation that I, I had at that concert was unlike anything that I've seen in years. It is the most unique experience I've ever had because I couldn't help but get the sense that while we were all in this room together, it was a sold out show packed with all of these people who probably have never met each other, or very few of them have. But all of us had this connection to this band that it wasn't a social thing, it wasn't a cool thing, ever. It was just this private little weird record that we were all really into from the internet. It's an internet band, and yet here we all were in the same room together. And it's important to remember what those songs were about. A lot of them were about suicide. A lot of them were about depression. A lot of them are about feeling that there is no one else out there in the world that feels the way that you do. And yet here we all were, despite that. We weren't supposed to be there. And we were there. And the experience that happened, once the music started playing, I don't think I've ever been in a crowd more excited, more invigorated, more open to fucking feel. There was no cool guy posturing. There was, there was no, like, attempting to look, you know, sexy or too cool for the music or anything. It was all just a bunch of people 
feeling the shit out of it. It was like, um, it was so teenage in a way. It was so overly earnest and so exploding with feeling. How to how to put a button on this? This is why I, I had difficult writing about it. Something about this. It was the most honest music musical experience I've had in in years, because it was literally just two people who had songs that they wanted to sing to the world and had no other ulterior motives and people who were at that show with no other ulterior motives, but to sing those songs back at those people and to sing them with the people around them, people that they've never had a chance to sing those songs with before. This isn't music you throw on at parties. This isn't music that you share on playlists. This is music for these people, for us, that we all got a chance to see in person with each other that we were not alone and that we had survived and made it to that place to know and to look into everyone else's eyes and see that they survived too. And that fucking matters. That's all I got to say about it. That's really beautiful. I, I got nothing to follow that with. It's a good thing to have. And it's what we've all got. We've all got something like that in our lives. And uh, I think that's what I want to take away from 2017 is that we made it to the end of it, everyone here, and we've got each other. Um, I think you're right. We, we made it here, and now we do the next thing together. On to the next year. Free Michael Collins. Mm-hmm.